producers here at listener sponsored free speech radio kpfk please give us a call or a click to let us know our work is important to you that you believe with us that the free flow of information is power we're humbly asking you to put your money where your beliefs are and support truly free independent radio that number 818 818- 985-5735-818-985-5735 or just click at kpfk.org and join there. Thank you. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, oil in California and gun control ordinances in LA County, coalition of anti-war forces from across the political spectrum plan protests in Washington, D.C. Your Black History Fact of the Day with Mr. Ernest Krim III, Scottish Independence and the Transgender Bill Blocked by English Parliament, Combating Racist Low Expectations in Higher Education with Ashanti Polk, Earthquake Aftermath and Conditions in Syria with Limited, if any, assistance from other countries. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. An L.A. Times editorial today writes that, quote, the oil industry spent $20 million on misleading campaign to overturn a new California law that bans new drilling within 3,200 feet of homes and schools, and it's paying off. The referendum to undo Senate Bill 1137 qualified for the ballot. State officials announced Friday that they would suspend implementation of the law until voters decide its fate in November 2024, end quote. Elsewhere, the Times writes that California's labor unions, environmentalists, and good government groups are alleging corporations are subverting the direct democracy of California voters by intentionally misleading voters who signed petitions calling for the referendums. California Governor Gavin Newsom was not pleased at all in a statement to media said, quote, greedy oil companies know that drilling results are more kids getting asthma. Results in more kids getting asthma, more children born with birth defects, and more communities exposed to toxic, dangerous chemicals. But they would rather put our health at risk than sacrifice a single cent of their billions and profits, end quote. While the governor was displeased with the oil industry's latest shenanigans, others are also displeased with the governor. The L.A. Times reports that while Governor Newsom has granted 123 commutations or reductions in sentences since he became governor in 2019, as of January, one-third of those people remained behind bars, in some cases years after the governor's recommendations, according to data from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 19 people who have received a commutation from Newsom have been denied release by the parole board, according to state prison officials. Another 11 who have received commutations have been granted parole by the board, but remain in prison still awaiting release. Altogether, 41 people whose sentences Newsom has commuted remain in prison. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors has unanimously passed a series of gun control measures on the heels of last month's mass shooting in Monterey Park, just eight miles away from where they met once a week. The L.A. Times reports that only two ordinances are expected to take effect soon. 
The Santa Barbara Independent is reporting that their county could be fined $6 million because the state mental hospitals and county jails are overwhelmed by the incompetent-to-stand-trial population, the IST population. The demand for state hospital beds for IST patients incompetent to stand trial is off the charts according to the independent. In November 2021, there was a waiting list of 1,700. Four months later, it was 1,915 and growing. The Santa Barbara Independent is also reporting that more than 150 members and, and supporters of the Jewish community in Isla Vista took part in a walk to remember over the weekend in a direct response to the recent anti-Semitic incidents in Isla Vista and in remembrance of the 6 million Jews who died during the Holocaust. According to the L.A. Daily News, in an effort to reduce black maternal and infant mortality rates, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted to expand doula care in the county by creating a hub of supportive birthing and prenatal services for pregnant women of color. The studies show that doula care is effective in reducing the use of C-sections and medications during labor, and it promotes breastfeeding. Doula care has also been shown to decrease symptoms of postpartum depression. The Daily News also reports that following its January 10th declaration of countywide homeless emergency, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors authorized its largest ever annual budget allocation for the county's homeless initiative. $609.7 million. According to the county, the 2023-24 funding allotment targets programs aimed at moving people out of homeless encampments and into housing, while also increasing mental and health and substance abuse services for the homeless. City News Service says the Los Angeles City Council has adopted an ordinance requiring landlords to pay relocation assistance to tenants who move out after getting rent increases of 10% or more. Under the ordinance, if a landlord increases rent by more than 10% or the consumer price index plus 5%, the landlord must pay tenant three times the fair market rent for relocation assistance, plus $1,411 in moving costs. The Long Beach Press-Telegram reports that Long Beach will add an additional 30 to 35 new interim tiny home units at its multi-service center, the city council decided during its Tuesday, February 7th session, where the body also okayed a $2.2 million contract with first to serve outreach ministries to serve to operate the city's fourth. The Los Angeles City Council also adopted an ordinance requiring the same thing. A Bloomberg report in the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin. Walt Disney Chief Executive Officer Bob Igor has announced plans for dramatic restructuring of the world's largest entertainment company that includes cutting 7,000 jobs and $5.5 billion in cost savings. The reductions include spending on programming and $2.5 billion in non-content-related cuts. About $1 billion of the savings are already underway, Igor said in a conference call that investors with investors on Wednesday. Meanwhile, entertainment website Deadline reports that Igor said the company has asked its board to reinstate the dividend by the end of the calendar year. The payouts beloved by investors, especially Disney's legion of retail shareholders, was stopped abruptly during COVID to conserve cash. Igor said that companies' planned cost-cutting will make this possible. Initially, he said the dividend will be modest but increase over time. The revolution will not be televised. The 
Mr. Ernest Krim III, a black history application specialist who uses black history to empower and educate families and train educators, shares a black history fact of the day. Happy Black History Month. David Ruggles was a black abolitionist who opened the first black-owned bookstore in 1834 in New York. And he wasn't just concerned with education. He was also concerned with emancipation, as it is stated that he helped free over 1,000 black folks from bondage. Ruggles was born to a free black family in 1810 in Connecticut, but his family exposed him to the abolitionist movement and the nature of slavery through church. In 1825, he moved to New York and was dumbfounded by how openly racist it was there. He felt something needed to be done. While there, he started working for a newspaper and began traveling around as a salesman and speaker to speak about the anti-slavery cause. This led to him opening his bookstore. Ruggles' bookstore focused on abolitionist and feminist literature and eventually expanded to having a lending library and reading room. This reading room became a place where black folks on the Underground Railroad could stop temporarily on their path to freedom. And one individual that you might know about named Frederick Douglass actually came through Ruggles' bookstore and stayed in his reading room for a while before being sent with money to New Bedford. What's the takeaway? We need to make sure we're supporting Black-owned progressive and revolutionary bookstores more than ever right now because they play a role in our liberation. Krim gives seven ways Black folks protested back book bans and Black history bans in American history. Check out ErnestKrim.com and tag your favorite bookstores in the comment section on today's KPFK post on social media with, with the hashtag Rebel Alliance News. And we'll respond back to you. Just to go back to our local news to um, highlight a little bit more about the Long Beach Press Telegram that um, there was a, a miss, miss word in here. The, but the Long Beach will add additional 30 to 35 interim tiny homes units at its multi-service center. The city council, they decided that on December, Feb on Tuesday, February 7th. And they okayed a $2.2 million contract with the first to serve outreach ministries to operate the city's fourth project home key interim housing motel location. And we know that Los Angeles City um, Council also has their Project Home Key um, program going on. Just wanted to go back and make sure that was clarified on there. Thank you. Scottish independence faces a new threat to home rule as the Scottish National Party controlled Scottish Parliament are overruled on a transgender protection law by the conservative English government, creating a possible slippery slope from the ongoing devolution back to direct rule of Scotland by England. The Satire Part Report. One of the most inspirational movements for independence has to be happening in Scotland today. <laughs> I'm Angus Brownlee, this is the Saltire Report. We're nearly a full month into 2023 and already we've witnessed perhaps the biggest news story of the year in Scottish politics, an event of grave importance regarding the equality of our nation and the very future of democracy in Scotland. I'm talking about the UK government blocking the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill. So for context, at its core, the bill's purpose was to update and simplify the existing application process for getting a gender recognition certificate, allowing trans individuals to legally change the gender on their passport, birth certificate, driver's licence, etc. The changes proposed in the bill would have made the lives of trans people living in Scotland just that little bit easier, and bring Scotland in line with international best practice. The Scottish Government started the process of reforming gender recognition back in 2017, the five main political parties all pledged their support to reform the Gender Recognition Act during the 2021 election campaign. And with two public consultations, years of expert evidence given to parliamentary committees, and 154 amendments proposed over three days of parliamentary debate, 
the GRR Bill is one of the most worked on and scrutinised pieces of legislation in the 24-year history of the Scottish Parliament. On the 22nd of December last year, the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill was passed with cross-party support. The results of the vote on motion 7312 in the name of Shona Robison is yes 86, no 39. There were no abstentions. The motion is therefore agreed and the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill is passed. Shortly after the bill was passed, however, the Secretary of State for Scotland, Alistair Jack, voiced his concerns with the bill, specifically its potential impact on the operation of the Equality Act, a reserved matter. So on the 16th of January, the Scottish Secretary confirmed he would, for the first time in the history of devolution, be triggering Section 35 of the Scotland Act, blocking the bill from gaining royal assent. Now, this unprecedented move quickly drew criticism from politicians of all the main political parties in Scotland, LGBTQ plus non-profits across the UK, and key political figures out with Scotland, including the First Minister of Wales. Uh, on the biggest question of all, I do agree with the leader uh, of Plaid Cymru. I think the UK government's decision uh, to use powers that have never been used in the whole history of devolution is a very dangerous moment. Uh, and you know, I agree with the First Minister of Scotland that this could be a very slippery slope indeed. In fact, one of the Scottish Secretary's most outspoken critics over the last few weeks has been the Scottish Conservatives' own justice spokesperson, Jamie Green, one of the only three Tories who voted in favour of the bill and has spoken passionately about the need for these reforms. But undeterred by these interventions, on the 17th of January, the Scottish Secretary gave a ministerial statement to the House of Commons, followed by a few hours of debate. The Section 35 order then came to a parliamentary vote for approval, and of course it passed. 318 ayes to 71 noes, meaning that the bill, for now, cannot receive royal assent. And while nearly every other party chose to vote against the Section 35 order, the Labour Party, the official opposition to the government, and often called the Party of Devolution, abstained from the vote. Including the Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland, Ian Murray, the only Labour MP representing a Scottish constituency. Though 11 Labour MPs representing English and Welsh constituencies broke ranks with their party leadership, choosing instead to stand with the trans community, their colleagues in the Scottish Parliament, and showing respect for the devolved institutions. Keir Starmer, the leader of the UK Labour Party, appeared on the BBC's Sunday with Laura Kunzberg days before the vote, where he voiced his own concerns about the bill. Among them, his opinion that 16 years old is too young an age for anyone to choose to officially change their gender. Now, in Scotland, you become a legal adult at the age of 16 years old, as opposed to 18 in England. At 16, you can choose to marry, lawfully consent to sex, vote and stand for elections, Scottish parliamentary and local government elections, and you can even join the British military. This has been the case for many years. Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar who failed to even so much as send out a tweet about the vote for a whole 24 hours, is now parroting Ian Murray, saying that while he believes that a Section 45 order should never have been given, he has justified Labour MPs being asked not to vote against blocking the bill because Labour does not want to get involved in a constitutional fight. So now Labour are calling on the Scottish Government to work with Alistair Jack to find ways of addressing the UK Government's so-called legitimate concerns conservative line that Labour are now parroting during its media rounds. But as Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Alex Cole-Hamilton explained on BBC Scotland, there is no compromise that can be made without gutting the bill of its core contents. Russell Finlay says that he wants to bring the Scottish Government to the table so they can have a dialogue about how the bill can be improved and worked through. But if you look at the reasons, there is no way in which this bill can be amended to the satisfaction of the UK Government. They've said that you can't have two systems for obtaining a GRC it's operating separately. Labour's response to the Section 35 order has been nothing short of a cowardly betrayal of its LGBTQ plus members and supporters across the UK. A betrayal of their colleagues in the Scottish Parliament, particularly Monica Lennon and Pam Duncan Glancy, key supporters of the bill. A betrayal of the trans community in Scotland and across Britain. And a betrayal of the very institution their party played such a key role in creating in 1998. I'm sure the United Kingdom's first ever female First Minister is enjoying the lecture 
from the Secretary of State and the various Cicero tribute acts behind them on feminism and the protection of women's rights. <coughs> Isn't it the case, Mr Deputy Speaker, that what we have here is a decaying government in its last months in office, yep. needing some red meat for its base, yep. an utterly yep. supine Labour Party trying to triangulate through all of this, meanwhile trans people are the collateral damage. And for those of us who still passionately believe in Scottish democracy, we must continue to oppose and fight the Section 45 order. We cannot allow the Tories to get away with blocking the GRR bill. To do so would embolden ministers in future to block Scottish legislation they disagree with, whether for ideological reasons or for their own electoral prospects, just as the Tories are trying to do now. And if they succeed, it will be just another recent step towards the end of devolution in favour of absolute Westminster rule. And on that issue of democracy, let's reflect. Because on Monday, the UK government introduced legislation to ban the right to strike against the express wishes of the Scottish government. On Tuesday, they introduced legislation to overturn the GRR against the express wishes of the Scottish government. And this evening, they will seek to put in place legislation that rips up thousands of EU protections against the express wishes of the Scottish Government. Are we not now on a slippery slope from devolution to direct rule? But for Scotland, this whole saga has highlighted once again a simple truth that we all in the Scottish independence movement have known and argued for years now. That the only way to ensure our Parliament is respected and is able to deliver a fairer, more equal nation for all the people of Scotland. That will only be possible through independence. Papa leave Ersin Coed and here Gudian. I guess it should come as no surprise that ultra-conservatives are ultra-conservatives no matter where you go. With the fundamental principles of basic human rights always up for debate through the filters of their moral comfort zones. A perfect illustration that the reasoning behind the desire for independence and self-rule globally doesn't, does stem from the very human need for civil rights protections. During this campaign, this membership campaign, you'll hear us talk a lot about new members and how important they are to KPFK. That's because broadening the base of support for KPFK is the fiscally responsible thing to do. The more people who support KPFK, the more stable our financial situation is. The better able we are to withstand ups and downs in the economy. So if you've never contributed before, know that your new membership will help to keep KPFK the reliable service that you and so many others depend on. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Ashanti Polk of Women's Leadership Project shares her college admission journey against racist, low expectations while encouraging others to keep moving forward with their college dreams and hopes. My name is Ashanti Polk. I am 20 years old and I am a third year college student. Today I want to talk about my college experience, how I started and where I am now. And I want this to inspire any black woman out there who's aspiring to either go to college or go back to college. My experience started when I was in my 10th grade year of high school when I attended the Black College Expo. I had a 2.0 when I was in high school. I already had a barrier up and I just went to Black College Expo on faith <laughs> because I didn't think I was going to get accepted to any college. To my surprise, I got accepted to three HBCUs. I was excited. I was ecstatic about it. But the problem was those weren't my choices. I wanted to attend Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Why Princeton? I heard it had the best psychology program because I'm a psych major. So of course, I want to go to the best school to be the best version of myself. But that's not necessarily true, and we'll get into that later. I went so I inched over to the Princeton University boot again on faith, because I had a 2.0, and Princeton's a top school. 
and I had no idea, no, no idea what to expect. It was just like, I'm going to do this. Either I get accepted or don't. But the worst happened. What's worse than not getting accepted? Let me tell you. So I go to the booth and this white woman, this white woman boldly says, there are only a few percentages of black students who get accepted. And when I say she boldly said that, I don't even think I was able to finish my sentence or I finished my sentence and I'm telling you, I'm excited. I'm like, I'm at the Princeton University booth. Like I'm here on faith. Like God got my back. She just tells me there are only a few percentages of black students who get accepted. That put a damper on my heart. That booth was the only reason I was there anyway, to be honest. And to hear that was like hearing a family member pass away. And unfortunately, because of that, I didn't think I was good enough for any college. For now, another reason. The first reason being I had a 2.0, and now because a few percentage of black students are accepted to a school. All right, so let's fast forward to 2020 when I graduated high school, which by the way, was in the pandemic. I was in school online. I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> it was college, we online. It was, it was scary, it was scary for me, but I did it. I get accepted, I start classes. I have to meet with my academic counselor. Everyone knows that you have to meet with an academic counselor when you start college, when you start school period, so they can help you elevate to the next level. I meet with my counselor and I'm excited. I mean, I am excited. I'm like, yes, I'm here. I'm in a college. Like we about to plan out the rest of my academic career. And she's being very rude. She's on the phone. She's not listening to me. She ends up enrolling me in a class that I took in high school. And mind you, she was a white woman. I, I keep getting shown that these white people don't care about my education. But it wasn't until I found this one group on my college campus that is dedicated to helping black students succeed. Their, their priority is black students, but they're open to everyone. But again, their priority is helping black students. And I want to encourage all my black women out there who are listening, who want to go out to school or who want to go back to school, who are in school, that no matter what people tell you, no matter if a white woman boldly tells you that a school only accepts a certain amount of black people, you are good enough. And please seek out the resources on your campus that support black people. Because not all resources on campus support black people. And I know it's hard to find those resources, but if you want it bad enough, you have to seek for it. I fast forward, now I'm at a university. I feel supported and I'm thriving, and I'm doing well. So I said all that to say this. My experience did not start off the best, but it's finishing off better than I started, and I'm grateful for it all. I'm Ashanti Polk with the Women's Leadership Project, reporting for KPFK, Rebel Alliance News. Welcome to the KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Organizers of a protest against the ongoing U.S. intervention in Ukraine are calling on people to come to Washington, D.C. on Sunday, February 19th, to help build a coalition of anti-war forces from across the political spectrum. They say that without working class unity beyond ideological boundaries, it would be practically impossible to, to avoid a catastrophic world war. Don DeBar spoke with Craig Pasta Jardula, host of the Convo Couch, one of the event organizers. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. On Sunday, February 19th, there's an anti-war protest scheduled in Washington, D.C. It's a unique one that includes people from the left, middle, and right of the political spectrum from the Libertarian Party to Antiwar.com and more. Craig Pasta Jardulo is one of the organizers, and we spoke with him via Zoom on Wednesday. Right, Pasta, I'm uh, really appreciative of you taking your time. I see you're a busy man doing the morning show, and then you got the other show and all the other stuff you're doing. But uh, at the moment, 
We're talking about Rage Against the War Machine, uh, February 19th, Washington, D.C., a convergence of what they used to call the left and right, but the anti-imperialist and anti-war faction, in any event, hopefully trying to build a majority, urgently needed to stop this war before they blow the world up. And, of course, we're running into challenges. You want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, it, everything you said, just ditto right there. I mean, the the urgency of what's going on. I mean, we were chatting before we got started over here, Don, uh, the talk about, you know, uh, some people mentioning that, are you know, big have big audiences and big followers about the Chinese balloon. You know, first of all, you know, you can just see how our media is in on this. Now, it was hard to find a source that didn't say spy balloon. and. Right. Yeah, the suggestions that came after that, you know, we should send bombers off from Guam, you know, the Chinese are doing this as a trial run. Uh, there were so many of them, but it just really kind of like uh, painted a picture of what we got going on in the United States right now. And, uh, you know, that that old school book, Addicted to War, it seems like the same. It seems like the same mechanisms are in place to persuade people to think that Chinese, uh, you know, balloons are an aggression and uh, that China is our enemy or Russia is our enemy. Uh, it's just more the same. So we're going to just get out there as best we can. Uh, there's anti-imperialist, anti-war. Uh, people, and we're going to come together, and we're going to we're going to rile up some people, and hopefully, uh, we can start something uh, that's been missing for quite some time. I know you've been in the anti-war movement for a while, but it's uh, pretty much non-existent. So, uh, a- any means possible, Don, we get out there, we can start something up, and uh, hopefully, get the ball rolling, bring more attention to what's going on with our foreign policy. Yeah, you know, we're looking at what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, and. Uh what's going on in response to it. We, we're, we're actually conducting a war. Everyone admits it even out loud now that we're conducting a war against Russia on Russia's border. They couch it in all different kinds of qualifying, you know, obfuscation language. But in fact, we are at war with Russia. Russia did not attack us. Russia did not challenge us. We, we started this war. And instead of there being you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the street in every city in the country understanding the possible consequences of this. You know, we have an attempt to have a rally of unity in Washington, D.C. with, you know, and it was a a month ago and and it's almost, you know, a month out, a couple of weeks out still with, with that, all kinds of acrimony around it as if it's an insane idea to try to stop this war and that we should be fighting over everything else that we have uh except for this war when this could end everything yeah i mean and for the those of us who uh you know understand the details the finer details of what is going on talking about what happened in 2014 i mean we can probably go back to 1991 u.s involvement they've always been creeping closer and closer nato's been getting closer to you know you know aside from breaking their promise but just getting closer to the border of Russia. And, you know, we have nuclear missiles lined up in a lot of the Baltic states. So, I mean, some of us understand the urgency here. It seems insane to some of us that we're saber rattling with another nuclear power out there. Um, but, you know, uh, Don, I, you know, I often think why people are so just um, blind to what's going on. And I often think about the programming that we went through for so many years uh, as kids, not just in school, but, you know, in our culture in Hollywood. I mean, uh, I will never forgive uh, Sylvester Stallone for making me cheer for the Mujahideen in Rambo 3, but that's what it was always about. We were always taught, we were programmed, Russia bad, Russia bad, Russia bad. So now we got this going on and people are just naive uh, to realizing that World War Three is out there. And yes, I mean, uh, it is a little disheartening right now. Um, Don, you were on a show of mine where we had the chair of the Libertarian Party. We had a MAGA person and we had you, a Marxist. And it was just we all agreed on war. We put everything aside. We all agreed that our foreign policy is out of hand. We need to bring it back. Uh, and check it and put it in place. So it is a little disheartening to see the little small uh, fights in between and what's going on. But, you know, I guess it's uh, we we have a little bit of a learning curve right now, and hopefully we can get it straight. I'm still optimistic. We can put all this little small bickering behind us, get out there and have a great event. And after that, uh, continue to move forward with shining a light on our foreign policy and the empire and what they're doing uh, in our name. Let's talk about the event a little bit, just so people know. It's going to be the 19th, which is a week from this coming Sunday, I guess, right? And yep. um, and uh, a bunch of speakers from, uh, you know, 
across the spectrum, um, including you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very humbled and very fortunate. Thank you. So uh, we've got uh, Chris Hedges. Uh, yes. Yeah, maybe uh, let's see here. We've got uh, representatives from the Libertarian Party, the People's Party, uh, the uh, Mrs. Caucus, and that's up in the air at the moment, actually, the, from, uh, well, let's see, who else? Uh, World Beyond War, uh, CPI, mm -hmm. the American Student Union, um, Free and Equal Elections, Antiwar.com, uh, and the yeah. Wars Coalition in Milwaukee, a bunch of other groups, left, middle, right, on one theme. Yeah. No war. Yeah. And right now, of course, when we have that war that's facing us. Yeah, and then people like Ron Paul, who was just going to do a video, is going to come out. Uh, Cynthia McKinney, uh, I don't know if they've uh, released this yet and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's rumored that she's going to be making a video. Yep. Um, you know, Jimmy Dore, uh, Tulsi Gabbard is now on. You know, and I have my dis differences with Tulsi, too, as well. But, you know, I mean, you know, I was a, star you know, a hardcore supporter of her, and, but I still think she's been, you know, her policies as a Democrat, she still was way beyond better than any of the squad members, any of the Democratic members. But it's okay. Like you can have your differences here. You know what I'm saying? It, it's all right to be adults and disagree, but it's really stupid to kind of like, you know, really trash on this event just because you have certain differences with certain people getting on that stage. We got to just more than ever come together and realize it's the oligarchs versus the rest of us. And until we get our heads on our shoulders and get that simple concept and come together, despite our small differences, um, we're going to just be sinking in quicksand. Yep. Dennis Kucinich and yes. uh, Garland Nixon. Yes. Blumenthal, uh, uh, Tara. Anya. Yep. That's right. Anya uh, Parampil, um, Supreme, Jill Stein, D mm -hmm. Diane Sayre, uh, Scott Ritter, Kim Iverson, Jackson Hinkle, you, of course, Wyatt Reed, all, all kinds of folks from everywhere. Again, if they blow up the world, all of these other disagreements that we have amongst ourselves do not matter. Mm hmm. And they're yeah. working on blowing up the world. <laughs> I know that there needs to be a sense of urgency right now. <laughs> like I said, Don, I'm very optimistic we'll get by the BBS. And this is going to happen. This is a new coalition that's formed, right? The idea that libertarians and, you know, anti-imperialist leftists, because that's the big major block here, right? I think um, people who used to consider themselves leftists who came through the Democratic Party, who were on the Bernie train, uh, maybe some of us went to Tulsi, combining, you know, forces with this libertarian party. I mean, this is something that could really be something special uh it's a vision i've had for quite some time i called it the yes, great compromise right yeah. don like yeah. hey we're gonna disagree on stuff uh we gotta compromise on the issues that we disagree on but let's come together on the things that we are so aligned on and that has been anti-interventionist you know anti-imperialism those are the things and this is a powerful combination yeah. so aside from people's egos don i also believe there's a little bit state money in there, a little deep state, little CIA kind of like Intel pro. Let's put a little fuel on the fire to cause this friction to make this thing be focused on all the, the little small stuff rather than the big picture at hand. So hopefully we can fight through the nonsense. Yeah. What do they say? Who benefits is the first question you should ask. Absolutely. Something. All right. So, Pasta, thank you so much. We will see you there. I'll be there. And uh, we'll be bringing this to uh, folks back at home. Thanks a lot. Definitely, buddy. Look forward to seeing you. And thanks for having me on, Don. Yeah. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. A powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake has hit Turkey and Syria, killing thousands of people and trapping many others. Rescue operations are still underway. Vanessa Beely is an independent journalist based in Damascus. She says the earthquake was devastating for Syria, combined with Western hybrid war on the country. For one thing, of course, uh, the United States and its uh, proxy Kurdish separatist forces are occupying Syrian resources in the northeast, which includes their oil and wheat and barley, uh, which means, of course, that the bulk of Syria is reliant upon uh, Iranian oil uh, to keep any kind of electricity running. At the moment, we have uh, basically about two or three hours of electricity per day 
Um, there is no heating in the majority of homes across Syria. And of course, we happen to have just gone through uh, the real cold spell. Today, for example, there were driving rains and winds, high winds, um, which is hampering the rescue operation, but also means that the people who are now homeless are in the streets soaking wet and freezing cold without any alternative shelter and without any electricity, without any heating, without any fuel, because of course we don't have uh, any heating fuel either in the country pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so these shortages combined of course with the uh, Western barbaric sanctions including the Caesar law that was imposed by the Trump administration, which penalizes any country that even comes to the assistance of Syria. So those countries that can then be sanctioned by default if, if they come to the aid of Syria, which is, you know, a criminal uh, sanctions regime to impose on any country and quite unprecedented. So with all of these uh, elements, Syria is suffering. I mean, this is devastating for Syria. The areas of Aleppo, Hama, Idlib, Latakia, the coastal areas have been hit the hardest because of close they, they were closest to the epicenter in Turkey. Hmm. In Aleppo, I think it's something like 89 buildings have collapsed. And we also have to remember that during the war, the terrorists, backed by the West, of course, had dug uh, vast cities of tunnels underneath the residential areas of these cities. So the foundations were already made fragile by the war itself and then of course by the war itself, the bombing, the aggression from the terrorist groups. The government of Mali has expelled the UN mission's human rights chief over, quote, destabilizing actions, end quote, in the African nation. RT correspondent Karabo Latlatla has more. Mali's interim government has accused the head of the UN peacekeeping mission in that country, who is the head of the human rights division of MINUSCO, as persona non grata and gave him 48 hours to leave the country. The foreign ministry declared Guliam Andali, who is the head of MINUSMA's human rights division, as persona non grata. In a statement, Mali's foreign ministry accused Mr. Andala of destabilizing and having subversive actions against the authorities. But there is history between the UN human rights chief and the Malian government and the United Nations Security Council. A Malian civilian accused the government and groups associated with it of widespread uh, allegations of uh, human rights abuses. And by associated groups here, this was a thinly veiled reference, of course, to the Wagner Group, which has been operating as part of the Malian government's security forces. It must be said that the presence of Russian military partners alongside the Malian armed forces, and of course their valour, is commendable. However, their presence does not uh, make things easier in any way. These actors are involved in uh, serious violations of human rights and international humanitarian law. These violations have been documented by Malian civil society organizations and have been reflected in official reports, including those of the UN Secretary General and MINUSMA, as well as other independent and credible organizations. On this testimony, the UN experts agreed that there should be an independent investigation. Mali, of course, was not pleased and in its response accused Mr. Andali and the witness of having no proof of such uh, claims that they are making and that they couldn't find any of that. The government went on to further point out that there's been a decrease, a marked decrease in human rights abuses and that Mali stands ready for elections next year, hoping, of course, come into a military coup that's currently ruling the country there from 2021. One can only wonder how much of this really has to do with the Russian factor. And it's become a partner of choice for the transitional Malian government. And this was the words that was echoed by the foreign minister of Mali saying that Russia stands no blame here and that they remain committed to their partnership. Cooperation between Mali and Russia is a state-to-state -state effort. Mali will not continue to justify that choice of partners. These choices have been made in a unique context and the distinguished representative of the Russian Federation has just indicated to you that this cooperation in terms of training and equipment is being carried out with full respect for international norms in this regard. 
We hope that that will be duly noted so that our country is able to carry on guaranteeing its security. Mali, of course, is looking to assert itself in that country as not only a government, but a government in control and able to make its own decision as to whom it wants to associate. And yesterday, the transitional government said that they were anticipating the Russian foreign minister's visit to Mali this week, and that with that visit, they hope to bolster the defense and cooperations that they have with that. It still remains to be seen whether Mr. Andali will actually heed the call to, uh, that has been requested of him to leave the country, or if he will actually just, uh, I don't know, linger longer, making the tensions even more. Such we will see as the 48 hours expire. But this is just one of the many list of tensions that have been experienced between the international body as well as uh, the African country. Speaking to the UN Security Council, musician Roger Waters has urged President Zelensky, Putin, as well as the US and the European Union to end hostilities in Ukraine immediately. President Biden, President Putin, President Zelensky, USA, NATO, Russia, the EU, all of you, please change course now. Agree to a ceasefire in Ukraine today. That, of course, will only be the starting point, but everything extrapolates from that starting point. Imagine the collective global sigh of relief, the outpouring of joy, the international joining of voices in harmony, singing an anthem to peace. John Lennon pumping the air with his fist from the grave. We've finally been heard in the corridors of power. The bullies in the schoolyard have agreed to stop playing nuclear chicken. We're not all going to die in a nuclear holocaust after all. At least, not today. That was Roger Waters, and he'll have the final word in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Seven FM KPFK, the only place you will hear an eclectic mix of true diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging engagement with you, the listeners, where the listeners and programmers are in spiritual partnership. How many generations of membership is in your circle of influence, in your family, and in your friendships? Or perhaps will you be the first in your circles, in your family, in your friendships to be a member of KPFK? To be a KPFK member or sustainer of such awesomeness, go to kpfk.org and click donate for that next level of connection. Keep the momentum going. And I personally want to say thank you for being connected to us as partners and providing a voice for the voiceless. Republicans begin to flex their mighty five seats of worth of public political mandate in the House of Representatives with a new McCarthyism. The Congress denounces socialism in all its forms and opposes the implementation of socialist policies in the United States of America Act. Is it too big a lift for U.S. Democrats to understand the dangers of anti-socialist statements that can and will be used against California's progressives? Well, Hal G. Lore of Red Star Report has something to say about that in Talking Points. This is Talking Points. 
As the Republicans begin to flex their mighty five-seat worth of political mandate in the House of Representatives, we're reminded of the modern conservative notion of reasonable discourse. Basically, taking a sledgehammer to any remaining semblance of political decorum, while Democrats have the nerve to stand there and look surprised. It's not like we haven't known this was coming from the Republicans since the George W. Bush administration and 9-11 anyway. As progressive Californians, we've watched the hard right shift in American politics for 23 years now. Were anything and anyone not white-skinned, uber-American, crystal-conservative, Republican, and frantically waving an American flag from a red state can be dismissed as un-American. We must take our country back, being the battle cry for Republicans for most of the 21st century. The primal scream of regressive America where a worldview of white supremacy, Christian outrage, corporate capitalism, and U.S. imperialism obviously could never have possibly existed and yet must never be questioned. And we, as Californians, have watched in horror as it's become crystal clear what conservatives mean by take our country back. It's a devolution plot. An over-idealized version of the 1950s is what they're after. But obviously, not the good 1950s stuff. I mean, Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard and Chuck Berry? Nope. Fedoras and Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack? No. Driving movies or diners with red sparkle upholstery and flashing neon signs? No, that's not it. How about poodle skirts with saddleback shoes and cars with tail fins? Yeah, not even that. No, what they're doing is gaming a system never designed to prevent a hostile takeover by an entire political party willing to tear down any and all democratic and ethical principles to gain a hold on power, willing to sacrifice the basic constitutional principles for the goal of rolling back any and all societal progress made in the last half of the 20th century. The progress that makes white bread America uncomfortable, that is. Bringing America back to the worst version of the 1950s most Californians could ever imagine. Using police brutality, voter suppression, and gerrymandering to cancel the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act. Using law enforcement and redistricting to create a new definition of the other side of the tracks. Overturning Roe v. Wade as an opening salvo before going after birth control, and in some states, actually redefining many forms of rape as legal, if non-consensual, sex? Seriously. Moves to reoppress women and make barefoot and pregnant a goal while ignoring the reality of a collapsing capitalist economy where the nuclear family with one income is almost impossible. Enacting anti-LGBTQ and anti-transgender laws on Supreme Court-protected state levels at first to remove the right to marriage and even body autonomy from people the American religious right has always preferred to see closeted, shamed, and worse trying to pretend they don't have to see gay people who are real in the name of a god they can't prove exists. But, you know, the whole bad historic 1950s reenactment thing didn't all fall into place for me until last week. There was one thing missing from this fascist version of happy days for a long-gone ideal Americana glory, and then there it was. Enter the new McCarthyism. The Congress denounces socialism in all its forms and opposes the implementation of socialist policies in the United States of America Act. After all, what good is living in a dystopian and oppressive Christo-fascist pseudo-1950s fantasy without some version of the Red Menace and the ever-present threat of global thermonuclear war? I mean, how else do you convince the superstitious moon-pied Trump-billy capitalist in red state America that climate change, homelessness, gun violence, inflation, racism, the pandemic, and a lack of health care are not as important as what bathroom a trans person uses and the evils of teaching the critical theory of America's actual history in college? And yet, 100 Democrats in Congress fell into this fascist trap, voted yes, and gave legitimacy to anti-socialism, stupidity, and fear. Brings me as a Californian to what I think is an honest, if not obvious, question. 
Why didn't House Democrats not simply refuse to vote for any measure to reaffirm capitalism and condemn socialism that did not also reaffirm democracy and condemn fascism in all its forms and policies in the United States of America? After all, didn't Republicans make such demands and pull out the same kinds of political stunts all the time when they were the minority party? Is it just too big a lift for U.S. Democratic representatives 3,000 miles away to understand the danger inherent in anti-socialist votes like this one that later on can and will be flipped to use against California's progressive values? Is it asking too much for our elected representatives to stop fundraising for five minutes and actually stand up and fight against such pieces of toxic political theater being normalized? Because if it is, then we as Californians really do have a serious problem. And we're running out of options. We are Red Star Report. KPFK Rebel Alliance News. This is Talking Points. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance Community Calendar Tips. Range Projects Gallery presents, in celebration of Black History Month, Rites of Passage, Digital Collages by Jesse Ujazi. Range Projects Gallery at 3718 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles is opened on Fridays, 6 p.m., to 9 p.m. and Saturdays 3 to 7 p.m. The exhibition runs February 11th to the 25th with the opening reception on the 11th. Call 323-528-6839 for more details. Julia Smith is the curator. Opika and the Chocolate Project present a virtual chocolate tasting event on Zoom, Saturday, February 18th, 6 p.m. RSVP by February 10th to get your chocolate tasting kit mailed to you. For more info, call 310-478-0226. Opika provides support for adults with memory loss and their families. Black History Month Extravaganza, Yaba's African and Caribbean Cultural Festival with music, cultural dancers from Ghana and Nigeria, African cuisine, and more at the Torrance Civic Center, Saturday, February 25th, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Call 562-833-8294 or check out yabamedia.com for details to celebrate Black History Month the Pan-African way. Remember, the 31st Pan-African Film Festival starts this week, February 9th to the 20th during Black History Month in Los Angeles at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills Theater with their fine with their Black Fine Arts Festival at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. For more information, visit PATH.org for the largest Black History celebration in America. Well, that's your KPFK Rebel Alliance calendar tips and KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to voiceless communities. Help keep KPFK a strong and independent source of music, arts, news, and information. Sometimes when you listen to a membership drive, you may feel like you're not, we're not talking to you, but we are. Maybe you feel like your contribution wouldn't be enough. It is. Well, let me tell you a secret. Every contribution is important. Whether it's a single $25 gift, installments of $25 per month or more, every listener's financial investment is valued. You depend on us to stay abreast of the news of the day, to know what's going on in our community and around the world, and to offer great entertainment. We depend on you to help provide the funding that makes it all happen. Every pledge is important. Every donor is important, no matter what size check you're writing. Go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Let us know how much you appreciate KPFK. We say thank you for every contribution, especially yours. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. 
And we're excited to bring progressive news back to Southern California and connect with the local community. If you want to become part of our news show or you have story ideas or comments, please email us at news at kpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, Tandi Sizwe Shemarenga, Polina Nasilev, Don DeBar, and the Red Star Report and all Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening at Los Angeles.